Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I didn't want to be that girl who's always crying, or God forbid, openly weeping, a phrase I'd heard and never wanted applied to me, in all of its weakness, frailty. This program features the work of 2022 writer Erin Langner. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Tell us about your Jack Straw project. So my Jack Straw project is a collection of essays where I'm using different works of art to reconsider and kind of what I call re-see my childhood growing up in the Chicago suburbs. Um, the collection is a chance for me to go back and think about it more as an adult, um, since I haven't lived there since going to college. Um, I, I, I moved to Boulder, Colorado to go to college and never went back to the suburbs um, except to visit. And so the collection is a chance for me to really um, delve into this place that I feel like I left um, behind in a way. And I have a daughter now and we've been going back more to visit family, at least until the pandemic. And um, it just seemed important to me, increasingly so, to understand my own history so that um, I can tell those stories and give my daughter a sense of her history, too. I found uh, myself doing the same thing when I had kids, um, wanting to kind of re-examine your own childhood and look at your own heritage in a way. Um, I know you mentioned that you're uh, working basically art pieces as a way to kind of respond. Uh, is that strictly uh, visual arts, or are you looking at music or film? Yeah, I use the term art very broadly. Uh, so visual art is uh, a big part of my life as an adult. I uh, work in an art museum. I've written um, art criticism was kind of how I came back to writing as an adult. And so that's one piece of it. But I also have a long relationship with music. And so I particularly, uh, that was a what I would say my primary interest in art in when I was living in the suburbs was a lot of the time through music or through mm -hmm. popular culture or film and, and television. So those are all things that I would say are works of art that I'm considering in, as I write this collection as touchstones. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up music. You know, uh, reading your work, it's obvious that music plays an important role in your memories as well as your writing. Um, I was wondering if it plays an important role in your writing process itself? Like, do you revisit older albums that you used to listen to in your childhood while you're writing these essays? I do. I actually was working on one. Um, well, during the pandemic, I ended up back in um, an office and I, I've always been writing in coffee shops for almost all of my life. And even in college, I did all of my homework in coffee shops. And But the pandemic really deeply affected that, especially when everything was closed, I suddenly had to work at home, which was kind of shocking. <laughs> and so I uh, had to work in our home office, which I had never really done before. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be where our CD collection um, ended up. And so when I was, and my husband was on sabbatical at the time, so I was just there by myself every day for 
a couple months. And so I started this uh, practice of going through the CDs that were in there one at a time, which I had alphabetized at one point. So I just went through each one and played it. Every day I'd played a different CD in alphabetical order um, while I was working. And um, in that process, I came upon some mixed CDs that a friend had made for me and in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up writing, uh, working on a piece about that relationship as much, uh, but it was very much inspired by hearing that music and thinking about the connections that the songs of our youth um, bring up, and particularly song a song you haven't heard in a long time and the way that can spark a memory just as easily. People always talk about sense sparking a memory from your mm-hmm. youth, but um, particularly I think in adolescence when you're listening to music so deeply um, mm-hmm. and connecting with it emotionally and having these like really heightened emotions of being an adolescent, um, it just sparked so much for me to be listening to music from that time that I hadn't heard in so long. You know, it's such an interesting part of identity formation during that time period when you so closely attached to some of these songs and these lyrics in a way that maybe we weren't able to express as kids. One of the things I find extremely fascinating about your writing is this idea of what's hidden. And I think in more your current work, you're thinking about kind of the idyllic facade of suburbia. And in your uh, first, or is it your debut book that's coming out? Yes. In the fall, um, it's more about the kind of the glitz and that kind of the surface of Las Vegas and how that kind of hides a different life. I'm kind of thinking about this idea of the hidden life of young women or the hidden life of grief uh, that can affect people. Um, what is it about that hidden life of objects or people uh, do you find fascinating? I, mean, I think it comes from growing up and thinking about the things that we do and we don't talk about and the things that we do to either escape them and how impossible that is. But I think I'm also really drawn to objects because I see them as these kind of vessels for the truth in a way. Objects are kind of always around us and they're kind of witnessing what's happening, whether we notice them there or not. And um, sometimes I I find it really fascinating to try to find because objects can be so layered, especially if they're old, mm-hmm. you know, they get a patina or they get some, you know, they're worn or um, they're a record they will be scratched by use mm-hmm. um, or, or compared to a CD, which will disappear over time. I recently learned and was totally devastated <laughs> to realize. Um, but they are kind of these witnesses that change with us. And so... I find that turning to objects, I'm able to mine them for perhaps some of the things that they can have that glossiness, but also speak to the wear and tear of, of living um, in ways that maybe we don't always want to talk about or notice or pay attention to. And so that's, I think, what fascinates me is to kind of delve into those details in ways uh, that helps me be more truthful with myself. I love what you said there, the objects as vessels for truth. And and I hadn't thought about them as kind of objects in time as well. So that's that's really interesting. Um, So uh, I'm just wondering, uh, as a writer yourself, what do you want to leave the reader with? I mean, I want to leave the reader ultimately with a better understanding of themselves. And that's something 
that has become increasingly important to me, I think, as someone who started in, in criticism, where, and particularly at this moment in criticism, when, mm. I mean, I I felt like criticism was, my criticism that I was writing was, was being read, but um, I wasn't always feeling like it was connecting because when you're writing criticism, you're writing about someone else's work. And a lot of the time I felt like the people who were reading it were the artists that I was writing about and then, you know, their supporters and their enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. And so that was a reason I wanted to rethink how I was writing about art and how I could write about it in a way that meant something to people. And so, um, and also rethinking because I work in a museum where language sometimes can be used, I think, as a, a almost a barrier, particularly in contemporary art, because that's, that's where I, I work with. Um, there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of language, there's a lot of kind of insider knowledge that is assumed and that ultimately makes, as I've learned over the years of working in museum, language can be a way to keep people out. And so through my writing about art now, my idea is to want to bring people in but ultimately, I think the way to do that is to create work that means something to them personally, um, because I think understanding yourself is a way of becoming a better citizen, becoming a better parent, mm -hmm. becoming a better member of the community, and you know, becoming the best person that you can be is through understanding yourself. So that is what I hope to be able to do through, through writing. hear a selection from Aaron's live reading. I like to think my mother looked like the artist Cindy Sherman. I see it mostly in their profiles, which match, particularly their noses. The structured triangular form immediately conjures certain attributes, refined, poised but subdued, and most of all, memorable. Your nose has personality, a lover once told me. I'd taken this to mean that mine has the same distinct shape, if only because it's such a rare part of a woman's body to discuss. That mine had become the subject of pillow talk made me think I inherited something important. The first time I saw my mother in Cindy Sherman's work was in the untitled film stills. These are a series of 70 black and white photographs the artist made early in her career in the 1970s and 80s. They show imaginary characters enacting scenes inspired by actual film stills from mid-century B-movies without referencing anyone in particular. The characters are all played by Sherman herself, outfitted in wigs and vintage clothing and makeup in varying degrees of excess. The photograph I saw my mother in first was untitled film still, number three. In this one, Sherman is dressed up as a housewife, standing at a kitchen sink beside a dish rack, a bottle of ivory soap, a juice jug, and a carton of salt. She's clutching her stomach right across the center, where the tie of her apron meets the hem of her mock neck 
She's clutching as if she's pregnant and unsure of what it all means for her. The most straightforward overlap between Sherman and my mother is their age difference, which is less than two years. Sherman's still living while my mother died of breast cancer when she was almost 40 and I was almost 10. But they're both of the post-war generation. Their mothers were among the white American suburban women who were sold a rosy femininity, that moment of return to the household after a brief wartime professional life. It was the time of Dior's hourglass new look dress on the cover of Vogue and the pink powdered colored aprons and the shampoos and lipsticks at local Woolworths. My mother's mother worked part-time as a hostess at the Drake Hotel, but she still chastised my mom for considering going back to work once my sister and I were born. Enough so that my mom quit her job as a nurse. What kind of mother chooses not to be with her children. I can imagine, though I never heard my grandmother spouting such words, but I recall my mom slamming our kitchen phone into its plastic base on the wall enough times to know they didn't get along and never really had. My mom was a daddy's girl, but my grandfather turned on her too. Listen to your mother, it's for the best. His tone was always more passive but so laced with hardness. And then she was just left with us, which as a mom myself, I now know means its own kind of aloneness when kids are so small and need so much of you that it can feel like the present is eternal and suffering, like you'll never be your other non-mother self again. Besides looking like my mother, the other part of untitled film still number three I always notice is a narrow, blurred object of some kind. Maybe a pan in the dish rack. It points directly at Sherman's heart, but it's so close to the camera lens that it's blurred. Your eye thinks that it should ignore it, but once you see it, you wonder how you didn't notice it there the whole time, slicing through the middle of the picture. They were women struggling with something, but I didn't know what Sherman wrote of the series. I see this threatening object as the embodiment of that struggle. Trying to understand that struggle is what keeps bringing me back to these photographs again and again. Each untitled film still is suggestive of a story surrounding the characters that doesn't exist. These women are narrativeless which makes me want to construct one for them. What's great about the film stills is they're not so much about what you look at, but they're also about what happened before and what happens after, said the artist Roberto Longo. He was living with Sherman when they were working on the series, and he took some of the photos since she was always in them. Because my mother died when I was so young, I have endless gaps in her story and endless questions about what happened before and what happened after each image that remains in my brain. Right after she died, I had no desire to collect and archive everything the way that I do right now. I didn't wanna be that girl who's always crying or God forbid, openly weeping, a phrase I'd heard and never wanted applied to me in all of its weakness, frailty. So I willed myself to forget 
Now, I'm left with the basic arc of her life. It's told to me in pieces by my father and grandparents. She grew up in the Western Chicago suburbs. She wished to be an artist. She became a lifeguard. She went away to college. She came back to suburban Illinois, became a nurse, then a stay-at-home mom. The part that I remember is she was working her way towards being a nurse again just before she died. And now I know that when someone dies, the unhappy memories are sacrificed for the ones that everyone likes to talk about repeatedly. Your mother loved swimming. Your mother was a smoker until she found out she was having you. Your mother quit her job because she loved being with you so much. These are some that I remember my family saying the most. They're reinforced by the photos I saw over the years, most now reduced to mere memories themselves. My mother in a one-piece navy blue bathing suit, treading water among the waves of a lacy pool. My mother looking down as she holds me up to blow out the candles on a cake topped with wooden blocks that spell my name. My mother in a green and blue striped polo shirt, her face frozen into what I think of as her fake smile, thin lips pressed tightly together, turned up at the edges, as if she's about to say something sarcastic, her eyes veering upwards, almost about to roll, as if there's a joke being told, though no one can remember what it was. There's also an image of my mother that feels like a photograph, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. It's a woman standing behind a kitchen sink. Her hair is shoulder length, parted down the center, bound back in a ponytail, lightly curled at the ends. Frame is narrow the way she liked it. She's wearing a white cable knit sweater, long khaki shorts. And above the kitchen sink is a window with airy cream colored curtains. The window is where my mother would watch. It's also where I can picture her laughing, where I think of her crying. I do not see her bent over the stove, even though she did most of the cooking, even though she didn't really seem to like cooking. I do not picture her sitting at the table, and perhaps this is because when I was playing outside and looked up, I would find my mother's eyes staring through the glass, narrowed and looking out somewhere beyond me and the yard and the straight-laced sidewalks, which ignites the question of what she was looking at. The first time I saw untitled film still number three was while I was interning at a museum just up the street on the campus of the University of Washington, studying tours. It was the only film still included in an exhibition that emphasized looking called 150 Works of Art. Each work in the show was situated on its own, centered on a black, easel-like stand, and they were organized in chronological order and scattered through this massive open gallery space, each one topped with its own glowing light bulb. The artist who designed the display likened it to music stands in an orchestra. But as I entered the gallery, I always felt like I was descending into a constellation of art. On the tours, the guide would stop in front of Sherman's small black and white photograph, and the five or six people on the tour would form a tidy circle around her, and all the guides always became, began with the same question. 
what do you see? There's usually a long pause before people started answering. A woman in the kitchen, washing dishes, thinking. She looks sad or concerned or pensive and alone. They didn't usually say she looked like she was in a movie. I'd recently learned what do you see it was part of a technique called the visual thinking strategy or VTS. At its simplest, the goal of VTS is to teach someone how to look. It was developed by a psychologist and a museum educator in the late 1980s when research revealed that people visiting the MoMA left without remembering much of what they saw. It turned out that most visitors needed to be prodded towards really looking rather than just going through the motions. Now most museums use VTS on their tours in some form. So the guide could mostly step back from the conversation after that first question, letting the responses become the art story. They addressed erroneous claims if needed, but that seemed rare. Questions about the artist's biography or the context didn't even come up most of the time. People seemed content with what they were able to see by themselves. At the time, this made sense to me. Made art approachable, equitable, pre-existing knowledge wasn't required. It made complicated art feel graspable. It opened interpretations rather than imposing a curator understanding on people. But I also felt a little uneasy with the idea that a work of art could be anything I wanted it to be. If I reconfigured the details in my mind, just so. And I find myself asking the same question. What do you see of the images of my mother that linger in my mind? But as I look through these details until I find one that resonates, I worry that I'm making up a story that is untrue, that I'm overlaying my mother's real narrative with one I've constructed that I'm turning a person into a Rorschach test or what I am seeing says more about me than it does about her. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Aisha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. 
thank you for listening.